An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Well, everybody, we are living in the post-Spare universe. It's been one full week since Spare by Prince Harry has hit the shelves. I, Juliette Littman, have not read it. Amanda Dobbins, how about you? (laughs) I am on page 366 out of, let me see here, 390. Hold on. Those are the acknowledgments. There's an epilogue. I love the acknowledgments. We're looking around 400 pages here. The epilogue starts on 402. Oh my, how could it be an epilogue? He just wrote this. Um, Okay, I just want to say, we're obviously going to get into it. Amanda will be giving us her book review. We'll also be talking about the latest shenanigans from Planet, Mountbatten, Windsor, Markle. Um, But great news, everybody. We also have a lot of other things we'd like to discuss today. (laughs) It's time after several weeks, several episodes in a row, we will be moving on because we are all sick of these people, aren't we? So we've got some really exciting stuff. I'm just going to tease it out a little bit. It's award season. There's been two whole award shows since the last episode of Jam Session. You probably saw zero, but that's okay. We'll talk about it. There, Amanda and I both read a really popular book. I'm not going to tell you what it is. We haven't talked about Emily in Paris in years. There's just a lot to dig into. Okay, so don't not, worry. Not years. Yeah. One year. A year and a half? It's been a while. No, it was... It, it comes out right before Christmas every oh, it year. does? And the happiest memory of my pregnancy was December 28th, 2021, Sitting on a couch and watching all of Emily in Paris, at, <laughs> season like, two, as I season two, as I could not move. So that was a almost a, that was You're a right. year ago. That was yeah. a year so, plus. Okay. Yeah. Well, and some other tr- some other tidbits we'll be throwing in along the way. So don't worry. This we'll just we'll all get through it together. And with on on that note, Amanda, please give us your tweet length review of Spare by Prince Harry, ghostwritten by J.R. Moringer, he of the exorbitant ghostwriter fee. Who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> no, actually, could you, could you no. give us a tweet length review that you could not have given before reading the book? <laughs> okay, yeah. Is this going to be a tweet length, tweet length review? Well, tweets are all going to be 4,000 characters soon, so take it okay, as you will. Oh, right. Well, one of them is I do not agree with Harry and Meghan's strategy of rebutting every single tabloid line by line. Which is one summary of this book. And my guy goes 
line by line, story by story, almost comment by comment. And it's working. Here's who thought this was a good idea. The publishers of this book who have already sold, like, broken all nonfiction records. I believe it sold 1.4 million copies on, like, the first or second day. I'm sure that includes pre-sales. I don't really know how it all works. But this book is selling. That's boy band numbers from the year 2000. That's that's. I want it that way and no strings attached. And that's really impressive. So this book is selling. So the publishers of the book, I suppose Prince Harry thought it was a good idea. And certainly their accountant probably thinks it's a good idea (laughs) because he got a 20 million advance, $20 million advance. And then I would assume that he sees proceeds of some of this. Sure. J.R. Moringer probably thought it was a great idea. Read that he got a seven-figure fee for ghostwriting this memoir. Check out his Twitter feed if you just want to see just a a not quite a late Gen X, early boomer person really tweeting through it Mm. via retweet and hashtags and such. Mm. It's it's a fascinating generational snapshot. snapshot, Would you say... Is he pro-Team Harry? Like, what's his current stance based on what you can glean from his Twitter? Yeah, he's pro-Team Harry. Okay. And I think he's pro the success of this memoir. And one thing that I would say about this book is that it is not playing the... It it is just Prince Harry's point of view. It's not like J.R. Moringer, who, as we've mentioned before, is a a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a famous ghostwriter, he wrote Andre Agassi's wonderful autobiography, Open. He wrote The Tender Bar. That's his own book. He, I believe he also ghostwrote ghost wrote Bill Knight's mm, Yes, memoir. Shoe Dog. Yes, he did. Shoe Dog. Um, so he's very good at what he does. And what he did in this book was just write down Prince Harry's thoughts and perspective. And it, he does not play mediator in any way. He, had, he is not standing in in the role of therapist or even like journalist, as I think certainly celebrity profilers that I live with, but people who do this work of interviewing someone and trying to tell the story of someone will like ask questions or push back or at least try to form their own view. And that's not what J.R. Moringer is doing. He is just like faithfully recreating Prince Harry's worldview. And I feel... There was a Alexandra Jacobs reviewed the pe- the book for the New York Times. She also wrote a great piece about like waiting to get a copy of the book. Yeah, which I really recommend. Great behind the scenes journalism, but she pointed out that you can kind of tell the differences in style between like Moringer's more like lyrical, like echoes of Shakespeare, and then the phrases that are like very clearly Prince Harry's. Mm-hmm. One illustrative example is when the book is talking about Shakespeare and Harry is like, I don't, I've never really liked Shakespeare. My dad loves Shakespeare. I'm not really into books except for literature like of mice and men. Uh, I really relate to Lenny. I swear to God, that is a real passage in the book. Okay? In case anyone forgets, Lenny is, uh, has famously has a, a tough relationship with his brother and yeah. he crushes the woman he loves with his brute brute hands, brute force strength. Let me also, can I just, uh, Juliet, I sent you this screenshot in the middle of the night. I'm now reading from the hard copy of the book, which I brought into the office. But Jade, can you, I need you to listen to this. I need like the interpersonal reaction. Jade is our wonderful producer. I'm sorry for doing this to you, Jade. Here is a quote, page 13. Things like chronology and cause and effect are often just fables we tell ourselves about the past. Okay, that's stealing from Didion, but whatever. The past is never dead. It's not even past. When I discovered that quotation not long ago on brainyquote.com, I was thunderstruck. I thought, who the fuck is Faulkner and how's he's related to us Wenzers? Jade, can you just look at this page and like verify that brainyquote.com is printed on page 13 of this book? Okay, yes. I also just want to note... There it is. Not only did he steal from Diddy and he also stole from Game of Thrones, what's dead may never die. Right. Uh, so, a um, lot ju- of appropriation going on here. Also, so once Prince Harry found this William Faulkner quote on brainyquote.com, he did make it the epigraph of his entire memoir. And that's like basically the summary of this book is my man went searching on brainyquote.com 
and then published a book. I have an honest, I, I have a genuine question for you that perhaps you can answer based on reading the book. Yes. In interviews and yes. from you telling me, I have heard Prince Harry say he does not like Shakespeare. Yes. He does not really like literature. Yes. He does not like Game of Thrones. He, I think, I, I believe he's not much of a soccer fan. Like his brother, Will Willie, is a very well-known supporter of the Aston Villa Football Club. What does Harry like? And what does Harry consume? Because uh, thanks so much for asking. Family guy and friends. There is a <laughs> recurring motif in the book, Family which I guy and friends. Which I have to attribute to J.R. Moringer, but it's very Harry watched Friends. And then they're like the whole chapter, which does involve a party at Courtney Cox's house that Harry attended. Sure. He said he took shrooms there. And so J.R. Moringer is just like using the episode title structure of Friends, like the one with the party at Monica's house, like throughout, because all Harry can talk about is like how much Friends he watched. And in like a dark part of his life, he's like between relationships. He seems like to definitely have PTSD from his time in the army. And but he's just like watching Friends and then just like making Friends references. He identifies as a Chandler, in case you're wondering. I it, I was wondering. I was I would have guessed Ross, but that's interesting to me. Huh. Okay. I think he likes rugby. He played rugby. Right. Yes. And I he know definitely he likes like rugby. talks about that. It's, what else yeah. does he like? Uh, you know, he talks a lot about the elephants in the like Akvango, Akvango Delta mm-hmm. in Botswana. I believe that's in Botswana. He and Megan do take a trip to Botswana that it's like very important in their relationship. Of course. And he it's has like, friends it's like in 10 Botswana. minutes of, of a Netflix show. Yeah, so, and he visits it throughout the, the book. He also, like, does work in Lesotho, so that's part of the... the so he likes that as well. Okay. Kind of think what, of what okay, else that's, that's he likes. That's sufficient. Elephants. I, I, I have always gotten the impression that he was, like, genuine about his patronages and his charities, so that seems to be reinforced by the book. Eh, You know, it's like he sort of mentions it, but without like a ton of detail. Here's another fascinating thing about it. And I, I, he is definitely obsessed with the press and it keeps like railing back on the press, which fair enough. As so are we on Jam Session. And he, they have made his life miserable. Like that is completely true. But what's interesting is he is going line by line being like this tabloid wrote this and this story and this story and this story and I mean it's like an incredible sort of pathetic level of detail but it's clear also that the tabloid press and the press in general like is his memory has like Mm. formed a lot of his memory and there are things that he's responding to especially from his childhood and certainly from his mother which is like tough and pretty sad and sort of goes unexamined in this book, but it's like, he doesn't have the actual memories. He just has all of these press memories that he's angry about and trying to rebut. So the things that you've read about that he's interested in, like he also almost seems to know that he's interested in them because there's like a record of it. Right. Which is, which is sad. It is sad. This would be an opportunity for like a jumping off point for like an interesting, like sci-fi Richard Powers, like novel. And it's almost like, there's the vessel that is Harry like could represent so much more than what the vessel contains, which apparently is just quotes from friends. I think that that is, is very true. I found, so the book is in three sections. The first is about his childhood, but really losing his mother. The second about his time and service in the army. And uh, which includes all of the details that lead to the, the, the excerpts that you and I were not impressed by. I wanted to ask about that. Do you have a yeah. different feeling about how he writes and talks about his time in the military now having all the context? I do not at all. I, it is it is not the passage in question, and it's really about a page total that does mention the 25 kills, is not as boastful as it as mm-hmm. it comes across in any sort of like an out of context like to his you know in his defense it's definitely in context of and he puts he explains how he would even know that it's 25 and it's because he worked as a helicopter pilot and as a, some sort of like call person and so everything is just like a lot more 
data-oriented and documented. And he's like, so I have to live with that number and I know it. But he does also know it and in, and includes it. And I th- would say that there are about two paragraphs total in at least 100 pages of writing that try to examine his role in war or just like the concept of war in any way. And two paragraphs out of 100 pages is not enough for me. And I, it does come across that the army provided like solace for him and structure for him and camaraderie for him. And he's a person who clearly needed it. And I also, I really don't mean to be disrespectful of people like who do serve in the military, which is a very like difficult and demanding and, and, and selfless role, but he is not thinking outside of his own experience of it and what Mm -hmm. it means to him. And like his casual narrations of, because he's like narrating every, not battle, but sort of like mission or at like action that he participates in. Mm -hmm. And there it's just sort of blinkered, not even blinkered, but he's just like, there's one passage where he's like, I didn't get enough Taliban. He was, I, I didn't get them all, but I like 10 must not have crawled out of the bunker. Like, I mean, I'm just quoting that. I, and I was like, <laughs> I, I found, crazy. I was taken aback by it. He seems to exhibit a real understanding and respect for like his his peers and for her vet, veterans. And I admire that. And I think that that's like really earnest. And he seems to understand sort of like in large terms, the I, he seems to find the appeal of like putting others and like a large idea before yourself. That it seems to appeal to him in the context of the army, but like it doesn't really carry out in his narration. It's too bad this can't be a conversation about simulacrum and simulacra. I would have liked it if his ghostwriter was Spike Jones or Charlie Kaufman. So maybe for the next one. Right, yeah. Additionally... On the topic of military service in Afghanistan, have you seen the documentary Retrograde? No, directed by Matthew Heineman? Uh-huh. It's on my list. I saw it, believe yeah. it or not, at a screening a couple weeks ago. I've been thinking about Afghanistan ever since. It's a beautiful documentary. Yeah. Absolutely harrowing. But I think that if you have been following the Prince Harry Taliban portion of this media cycle it's like really worth watching because it rescues like the idea of the war in Afghanistan from something frivolous into what it actually is, which is incredibly uh, tragic because it's war. Anyway, I just want to recommend that on the topic of Afghanistan. I think that that would be time better spent than these hundred pages. Yes. Which were the real low point of the book for me personally, just because the complete lack of perspective or like, yeah, it's consideration, like not fun or funny. examination. No, but just, just not even thinking about it. And you can kind of even feel in that one page that I was talking about where he does at least explain how he knows a certain number and what it might mean. Like someone's prodding him to think about that, you know? Right. Right. You can't often, well, you can feel the ghostwriter, and it's either moments of reflection and or references to Shakespeare. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, but you can feel it in that one. Maybe Harry should read Hamnet. It's another great entree to Shakespeare. So one other moment in the book where he says he's not <laughs> you just into that books. Idea. <laughs> no, I, no, I'm following up on it. One moment in the book where he's like, I'm not really into books. That's a quote that he gives in response to Megan saying that she's having an eat, pray, love summer. And he mm. does not understand the reference. So if my guy can't catch an eat, pray, love reference, I'm not sure that <laughs> Hamnet is a realistic goal. You know what I'm saying? Fair enough. Fair enough. I am so tired of this man. Me too. I'm so tired of him. Couldn't do it. I even do. I don't know if I. If I don't know if I feel empathy for him at the end of this, and some of that might just might be like overexposure. I've consumed so much of this stuff. I, you know, like my friends want to talk about it. Like. Juliet, sure. Juliet, my friend, doesn't want to talk about it, which is valid. <laughs> but, like, people, yeah. you know, are curious what I think. I, I read the book. I watched the series. So it might just be that I'm, like, on overload. But I— We're all on overload. I think everyone's sick of them. I'm really—but no, no, no. Here's, here is the interesting thing. I, with every page that I have to put up with this man's nonsense, 
I like Megan more and more. I agree with you. And and I, so I do think it's a win for her. And I think that I was unfair to her. I don't know that she and I would be on the same wavelength as friends. She's a doer and a joiner a lot more than I am. And I also, you know, I read the infamous baby brain passage. Gonna be honest, I would be really pissed. And she's like, this is how I talk to my friends. And I was like, well, it's not how you would talk to me. But that said, I... I'm not sick of her. And another takeaway from this, you've talked about how they seem very in love or that he like genuinely seems in love with her. It might just be how this is structured, but I, I think it basically is true. He definitely loves her, but she was also kind of the like escape hatch. And it's very clear he was looking for that. It must be so intense to be her and have all of this like basically like love and obsession and need piled on you by your spouse. Like I would find that completely suffocating. This is not an endorsement of life with Harry. Uh, No, (laughs) I just, I'm like, that is a lot. There's a lot writing on you. There's a ton of pressure just to like, to be able to make this person okay. So I, you know, credit to her. Seems like a lot though. You know, I come back to the Mariah Carey diva moment where she called Megan out on her podcast. Mariah called out Megan on Megan's podcast saying like, you're a diva too. It's very hard for me to imagine Harry letting a moment like that happen based on everything we've learned about him in the last couple of weeks. And that's another thing that makes me like her more. I wish them the best. You know who else I wish the best, Amanda? Who? The Royal Taylor. Why did the Royal Taylor have to be brought into this? The I, only, the I'm going to be thing. honest. I'm going to be honest. This ruled. This was incredible tabloid <laughs> journalism. Okay. And I understand that the tabloids ruin lives and are like monsters and also probably are part of our like crumbling democracy and world at large. But whatever. They finally found the Taylor at the center of Bridesmaid Dressgate 2018. AJ Mirpuri. He. He is the royal tailor who was standing by, ready to tailor Charlotte's dress. Yeah. Uh, Oh, okay. One more thing that hasn't really been communicated (laughs) in that. Hold on. Let me just read the passage. Oh, good. Page 338. Okay. (laughs) So Harry is recreating a text message exchange Mm -hmm. or a phone conversation exchange between Kate and Megan. So obviously several games of telephone, but Harry, this is how he's recreating it. Kate says Charlotte's dress is too big, too long, too baggy. She cried. And this is Harry's version of Megan's response. Right. And I told you the tailor has been standing by since 8 a.m. here at KP. Can you take Charlotte to have it altered as the other moms are doing? KP is Kensington Palace. Yeah. That's just a real, like, per my last email, but like even more aggressive. I got to say again, don't speak to me. I I wouldn't do well if anyone spoke to me that way. You also, though would just get your child's garment tailored. Be like, you know what? This bride has a lot on her plate. This is a lot. I'm just going to handle true. this. So That is true. You you would not be in this situation. And you definitely don't like to make well, a you fuss. Never, you never know, though, because weddings get really messy. You yeah, know, that's why you like, would be like, all right, I'm just going to take care of this. Uh, you would find your own tailor wherever you were. Right. I know you the, would. The best part is that later on, Kate says that, uh, according to Harry, Kate says, my wedding dress designer, a.k.a. Sarah Burton from Alexander McQueen, has also assessed the bridesmaid's dress and agreed that it needs to be remade. I would have just been like, Sarah, my friend, let's just do a little stitch stitch here. That's what I would have done. Only the best for my uh, fictional royal daughter. (laughs) The good news is the Daily Mail tracked down the titular AJ. And he says thusly, if anything happened in the background, it didn't happen in front of me. But yes, weddings are stressful at the best of times, and especially one at this high level. You've got to respect that. They were faced with a problem like anyone gets at a wedding with last-minute hitches. I can understand why anybody would be upset if the dresses weren't fitting. It's nerve-wracking. I feel for them all because you wouldn't want the children to go out on a big stage in an ill-fitting dress, and that's what they were. All six bridesmaids' dresses had to be fixed, and we did it. I'm a royalist, and I want to do whatever I could with my small business to serve the royal family. We just got our we just got our heads down and said, now we're here. We've got to fix it. So on the day, Britain comes off well. Have this book 
not come out. No one would have known it was us. But if it saved the day, it saved the day and good luck to them. I won't say it upsets me, but that in that whole event, this is what's spoken about the most. It should be the fact that the bridesmaids looked fabulous. Wait, hold on. There's one more bit. There's one more bit. That's really good. I've no idea. I've no idea what measurements Givenchy had received, but with our experience and knowledge, we could see straight away that all six bridesmaid dresses had to be fixed as they weren't going to fit. <laughs> We had to work tooth and nail for four days, four of us working until 4 a.m. three nights in a row to make them fit. We left Windsor Castle at 10 p.m. the night before the wedding. I'm just saying. They did a great job. They did a great job. But, like, how wrong do these dresses have to be for all six? I mean, what's going on in France is what I have to say. Claire Wheat Keller who designed Megan's dress and these bridesmaids' dresses is, is no longer with Givenchy. So I think we'd have the answer, but that's, that's not great. Sheesh. Um, also, oh, wait, one more. When asked what he charged, he replied, I won't divulge that or who paid the bill. I can't say it was four figures or five figures, but whoever's mistake it was paid the bill. Okay, so thank you to France for paying the bill. <laughs> oh my God. It's really good. It's really, really good. Shout out, AJ. They, they, Shout the, out, AJ. The girls looked very cute. They really did. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says, Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Let's move on. And while, while we're talking about France, it's time to talk about Emily in Paris, which shame on us for not getting too sooner. Well, I was going to say you opted not to finish Spare or to start it. And I have not yet finished Emily in Paris season three. I've been savoring. So I have two episodes left. I'm very jealous. I have some sense of what's going to happen, but I don't want you to tell me because okay. I'm saving them as a treat for myself. So I basically, I don't know who she ends up with at the end of the season. I am I know I'm going to be mad if it's not who I want, but... Who do you want her to end up with? Obviously, want her to end up with Gabriel. All Gabrielle, respect to yeah, Alfie. Me too. Gabrielle, yeah. Alfie. Sorry. I I did think it was charming when she sang Alfie at the karaoke party, whatever. Even though there's far too much singing in this season. So here's the deal. It's not cool to like the show. It's not cool that it got nominations instead of it may destroy. I may destroy you. It's not cool 
in, in really any respect. However, did I text Amanda? I wish there was a constant stream of Emily in Paris content for me to watch. Yes, I did. You sure I did. Emily did Paris. I respond with a pitch? Emily in Provence, summer, spin- yes. summer spinoff inspired by the... Did I Google that restaurant after watching the Provence episode to be like, is this a real place that I could go? I did. So I guess that's the power of marketing. I guess Emily really is good at her job. <laughs> Emily calling herself a marketing executive is just the dumbest thing in the world. But anyway, I love this show. I had such a great time watching it that I like watched every episode twice, like in a row. Like I watched one, one, two, two, three, three. Like I just wanted to make sure I was really absorbing all of it. And I, I just, I like, joked aside, I do think this is the best season yet. Like it, it has a more of a rhythm to it. Other characters have more depth than ever before. Mm-hmm. I, it has more sexual liberation than really ever before without being too like self-consciously French. And I just loved it. Also, all TV shows should be set in beautiful cities and the countryside in summer. That's another huge plus was that it was like summer in Paris and it looked great. Completely agree. Loved it. I mean, it is marching its way towards Gen Z sex in the city. And even we the compare, I mean, totally, we need it. But even the first season of Sex in the City was like kind of finding its form a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more like fake documentary, if you'll recall, and and like, you know, problem of the week. And then the characters like start developing. I'm not sure I'll ever get past marketing being like the reason that everyone gets out of bed in the raison, morning. You the know? raison d'etre for Emily yes, in Paris. thank you so much. Yeah, that, you know, everyone like has a calling and has got to work all the time and follow their passions. And it's like making sure that like McLaren or whatever has like the perfume for its launch or I, I don't even know. I, like, I'm sorry. The, the marketing focus still bums me the fuck out. Yeah. Even as I look forward like jubilantly to every episode of this show. So one thing I'm so happy, I'm so happy that we're on this journey together, Amanda. Yeah. It's beautiful. One thing that I also find shocking about the show is like, say what you will about it. Say what you will about some of its choices and and the number of musical numbers that Ashley Park must have negotiated for in season three because there's noticeably more. It gets good performances out of people. And I say that having watched Lucas Luca Bravo in Ticket to Paradise, where like... Wow. Wow. Tread carefully. I found him Tread. so profoundly unhot whereas when i watch gabrielle i find him so unbelievably attracted attractive it's a little bit different than a performance he's yeah. comic relief well, in tickets paradise i understand and I thought he that. was quite funny i know but it just i'm just like th- this I show also, actually gets the best out of its its people and then i read w- this wait, like can i just say ticket to paradise also allowed me i saw it with sean for the big picture and normally we go see movies and Sean has to lean over and be like, you know, that's so-and-so who's like the fourth droid once removed from like Star Wars Palpatine. And I'm like, uh-huh. And But this time during Ticket to Paradise, I got to go over and yell really loudly, he's from Emily in Paris. <laughs> and I was so excited. And I loved did, that there was an end joke for me. Did that hasten Sean's departure even further when the movie concluded? No, he had a good time. He knew that I would not podcast with him anymore if he left early. Gotcha. He went to the bathroom during the Julia Roberts, George Clooney dancing scene, which I was that incredibly sucks angry for him. about. I yeah, know. That's what a bummer. Anyway, I this was really reconfirmed for me. Well, first of all, I was like, wow, Alfie's hot. I'm going to follow him on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Huge mistake. Lu- oh, no. Lucian Lavis Count is very, very hot. He, he yeah. also, he reminds me of Lewis Hamilton. But anyway, he's very hot. He's so fashiony, also like Lewis Hamilton, that I'm just like, eh, this is not for me. So I'm just like, wow, they really do a good job making everyone on the show like hot and attractive, like literally yeah. everyone. And then similarly, probably the one that takes the cake and I'm having to reassess is Lily Collins because Emily Cooper is like annoying, but like kind of well-realized as like annoying marketing girl, American in Paris. And then that really came came into focus for me when I read <laughs> Lily Collins's like my 10 in the uh, New York times Sunday this past weekend. And her list was like so boring and so self-conscious that I was like, I cannot believe this actress is able to like make fun of herself regularly as Emily Cooper. She of the Instagram account. Like, okay, hold on. Let's yeah. go. Let's go beat by beat. You did send this to me and I did read it. Number one, greeting cards. You famously, 
did a hottest take. Well, I guess Mallory did the hottest take and you defended greeting cards. And I have to say that, Juliet, you are a wonderful card sender. And it's a gift that you have. And they're, they're yeah. the right card for the person. It's a really lovely touch that I am not very good at. So number one, greeting cards, you and Lily Collins, same page. Sure. Again, I just want to note, I'm not like a charismatic <laughs> actress. I'm just a weirdo <laughs> with a microphone. But anyway, yes, I do support the greeting cards. That's fine. Okay. It's just and and by the way, like the question is like what are the what are like the 10 things that like you always want to have or whatever? <laughs> Number two, self-portraits. Okay. okay. Fine. That's like my coffee table book of self-portraits, like that you bought because you thought it seemed cool at the MoMA design store and then right, it right, comes right, to your right, house, right. you never open it again. Okay, yeah. cool, fine. So next. So so they I do, I am curious here. I have a lot of questions about the editing of this piece, right? Because this is like an as told to. And in fact, I would love to, the New York Times shared with us the circumstances during which this interview was given. Collins conducted from her car, parked next to the road in Los Angeles before <laughs> I an forgot appointment. That part. Okay. Yeah. So that's really good. And that, let me just go ahead and translate that for you. That means that this journalist spent for fucking ever trying to get this woman on the phone and was like pretty annoyed when she was offered the 10 minutes before her eyebrow appointment or whatever. So Although I would assume that eyebrow person comes to Lily Collins. So she I, probably I forgot. And, she, and her agent called her and was like, you need to talk to the New York Times. And so she pulled over. That, that right. was my guess. Right. So, okay. But so, but so I, I assume that a list is given and then the, the interviewer asks the person about the, uh, asks Lily Collins about the items and then they kind of edit this together. So this yes. is all what Lily Collins said. We don't know that Lily Collins actually wrote, like, the display or even the formatting. For example, number nine is coffee. (laughs) And I don't think that Lily Collins, they were, like, ten things that you love. I I don't know Lily Collins, but she probably said something more specific than coffee. And they're doing her a little dirty on this. In fact, she names a Norwegian coffee brand that she discovered on her many trips to Denmark, which just, you know, has its own issues in in terms of being, like, not relatable. But probably she was talking about this coffee. And then they were like, coffee. (laughs) So so also, like, self-portraits, she references Vivian Mayer's, like, self-portraits. I I agree that, I mean, maybe she said self-portraits. I I don't know. She probably said this specific book. Fine. Yeah. But... The we stood out to me a lot. There was a lot of like, when we do this, we, I assume, is she and her husband, Charlie McDowell, who is a Nepo baby, whose parents are Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen. Elite coupling. Just an absolutely elite group of parents right there. Really good. I mean, between hers and his, it's really unbelievable. And... They just don't even name him. Like it's just like she has done so dirty by this article, but it yeah. really worked for me. It was great content. It they was also, it was really good. They also went out of their way to point out that she doesn't know anything about Paris. Like she does. Like she says in like probably a very polite way <laughs> that when she's there, she's there to work. And quote, I don't have as much free time as I wish that I had to explore. <laughs> I'm constantly discovering new places and asking people for people's lists because I like the non-tourist spots. And then. She says, but the article says, but she admits one of the best sites in the city is still its most famous. Quote, whenever I'm in the city and I look up and I see the Eiffel Tower, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. I still get giddy at such a feat. Listen, many people feel this way with the Brooklyn Bridge, the Hollywood sign, many famous locales. But to pair that with, she doesn't have time to explore, but she likes to like, she wants to explore is just so, is so embarrassing. So they must've really hated her, which made me hate her. But then... I will say the one thing that I was the most excited about, I was like, I'm going to check this out, was the television show Van Gogh on the Magnolia Network, which means it must now be on HBO Max, where Brett Lewis converts things like vans and sprinters into home stores, food, and food trucks. So, (laughs) I don't know. This girl's basic. That's just... She's basic. But like, not... So is Emily Cooper, but like, Emily Cooper is fun basic. This did not give me fun. This is not styled in the way that everyone in Emily in Paris is is mega styled. Agreed. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Check out Emily in Paris season three. It's really mm-hmm. just a fun time. Next, Amanda, how were the Golden Globes? They were okay. You okay. checked out halfway through. You never no, responded to my text about President Zelensky zooming in to give a message <sighs> Listen, of hope. 
In June, back in June of 2022, I texted our colleagues, Jeff Chow and Chris Ryan saying, can I put money on Zelensky being Times Person of the Year? Mm-hmm. I just I just knew yeah. that like this was going to happen. I mean, also the man's a performer. Of course, he takes every yeah. opportunity to perform. Also, he's doing a really good job. So I, I don't mean to like cast aspersions on him or on the It's actually very uncreative of, of Hollywood. It's like find yeah, someone else I was to just inspire. kind of like, uh, you know, Sean Penn showed up very red-faced and like gave sort of a, a speech, an overly emotional speech, and then like he zoomed in. Whatever. You didn't text me back. I noticed that. I think the last thing you saw was uh, Austin Butler's uh, voice, <sighs> which we did, just, Which we debated if that was real or not. Turns out it's not. It's not? No, people were like, that's not what he sounded like when he dated Vanessa Hudgens. Okay. I think your suspicion that he was still doing Elvis is Elvis. correct. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Austin, but- if Austin Butler is the future of Hollywood, we're in trouble. There's many signs that, th- that planet Earth is in trouble. And one of them is the supremacy of Austin Butler. I have to be honest, hard disagree. I was like, I I thought the voice was absolutely ridiculous. And I texted you and several other people simultaneously being like, does he really talk like this? Like, that was preposterous. (laughs) And also, I was ensorcelled. And I don't know if you've seen Elvis. He's fantastic. And Kaya Gerber knows something that the rest of us are just learning, okay? Uh, Because I think that he is too young for me, but he kind of gives me (laughs) Gosling vibes. I got to be honest. I'm just like, I can't look away, and I'm a little bit tongue-tied. Gosling does voices, too. Yeah, and he does voices. So I'm I'm okay. I'm okay with this. Jade's like really laughing at me. I, what do you want? <laughs> I think Austin Butler is really famous to people I of know, Jade's million. He was Disney guy so. forever, but whatever. Now he's a grown up. He's playing in the big leagues, and I say welcome. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> I've been gen- generally underwhelmed by this award season. However, the only like article I read about the SAG awards that were over the weekend was about. Um, Critics' Choice Awards. Sorry, Critics SAG Choice. Awards are in a couple weeks and they're streaming on Netflix's YouTube channel in case right. you want to catch up. <laughs> the Critics' Choice Awards were over the weekend and they were on the CW. Yes. And Seth Rogen took the opportunity to rail against the, the CW, which I just mm-hmm. thought was really rude and like <laughs> unnecessary. Like, just back off, man. I it It was not watched very widely, I will say. In <laughs> fact, even I, a person who covers the awards show as professionally, did not watch it consistently the most underfunded of the awards shows. The Critics' Choice Awards made a bid last year to replace the Golden Globes. Right. You know, there was a hole in the, the right. schedule and they were like, this is our time and it was not their time and it doesn't really seem like it's ever going to be their time. So, yeah, I don't know. Did Seth Rogen win for the Fablemans? I think he was presenting. Oh, he was presenting. Okay, I was going to say Seth Rogen winning for the Fablemans would be very strange. Have you seen the Fablemans yet, Juliet? I have not. Okay. My favorite, Steven, my favorite Steven Spielberg movie is Catch Me If You Can. Okay. And I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Both my <laughs> engagement with Steven Spielberg's films okay. and my, my thoughts on the family. Okay. Ones. All right. So t- talk me again through Juliet's award season experience. <laughs> I really liked Gerard Carmichael. I thought he was awesome. I felt okay. really bad for pianist Chloe sh- taking the brunt of the, of the blame for the rude playing off. Mm-hmm. I'm glad celebrities are like hanging out again. And it's like pretty boring. I don't know. Like the, the, the whole thing is just pretty, pretty boring. Did you happen to see the Regina Hall stuff? No, I didn't. Oh my God. This was transcendent. So as the night went on, people got drunker and it was really funny and it got a little zanier. They gave uh, Eddie Murphy the Cecil B. DeMille right. award and he did like a pitch perfect Will Smith joke at the end. Like, everything was, like, very measured. I watched that on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. So that was really delightful. Also, just, like, they did a clip of Eddie Murphy stuff, and they showed Gumby from SNL, and I just Mm. laughed for the first time in, you know, decades. I'm quite looking forward to You People, which is coming out in, like, a week and a half. Yeah, I I will be seeing it. (laughs) Anyway... Then at some point, Regina Hall had to, she came out, and I suppose she was doing limited series because they saved all the limited series for the third hour, which, like, I don't, whatever. And I believe Kevin Costner won for Yellowstone, but Kevin Costner lives in Santa Barbara, and this was during the Mm, great LA weather event, and so he did not attend the Golden Globes. And so there were several people and several winners who didn't attend and, the, you know, they were kind of like pre-written, we accept on their behalf speeches, like on the 
prompters, but they gave like a little more information than they needed to. For example, <laughs> Amanda Seyfried was in the middle of creating a, a musical and so she couldn't be there to oh, accept yeah. for you. That's literally what they said, which, you know, same. But then Kevin Costner... Um, the way they put it was that Kevin Costner was currently sheltering in place in his home in Santa Barbara. And Regina Hall found that to be a ridiculous uh, sentence, which I kind of agreed with. And she just started cracking up. And then she like, she couldn't even get out. It's like currently sheltering in place. And then she was like, no, this is serious. You know, it's a sad situation. He, and it was like, it was incredibly, incredibly funny. And I have just, you know, thoughts and prayers to Kevin Costner many times. He's fine. He just couldn't cross <laughs> a road. Okay, from okay. his $40 million ranch. So I mean, he probably was very, very comfortable at home. Yeah, I think having, so. Just having a great time. Well, I'm just glad, I guess. Uh, although I wanted to mention this, the Golden Globes are a super spreader event. So also oh. hope everyone's feeling okay. At least, I mean, the first people to report having it from the Globes were Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson and then like sev- several other celebrities as well. Awards season has kind of been one long super spreader event. There was a separate group of people who couldn't attend. Palm Springs. Palm Springs and and some... I think James Cameron couldn't even go to his own Avatar premiere because he had... He got COVID at one point. It's kind of, it's kind of been rolling. I, I can't believe he's susceptible well. to COVID. That's shocking to me. just thought he'd be above it. James figured Cameron? It, yeah, figured out a way well, to not get COVID on Well, he's been living in New Pandora. Zealand, so he was doing a great COVID job. COVID zero, yeah. Yeah, but then, you know, you got to go out in the rest of the world. I don't want to go to Disney World, but it's come Maybe to my attention. The- there's, a, there's an Avatar Pandora ride, and, like, that's the most compelling thing I've heard of ever in the history of Disney World for You want to give go. your Avatar 2 review? You haven't given it in public, I believe. I had a great time. <laughs> I... I'm confused about why the Reef people did not help the Sully family in their time of need in the final 30 minutes of the film. But I had a great time. I feel really connected to it based on having watched James Cameron's Secrets of the Whales on National Geographic. Obviously really influenced a lot of the... The Tukun? Yes, the Tukun. And the graphics were incredible. I saw it at the end of like Christmas weekend where I just like wanted to hang out and be quiet for three hours. So it was perfect. And it's a, you know, a deeply problematic endeavor that James Cameron is, has taken on. And I really enjoy the movies. (laughs) (laughs) Thought that was a great review. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Let's move on. You mentioned Sean Penn a few minutes ago. Yeah. One of our zaniest celebrities of our lifetimes, famously on and off with his former wife, mother of his children, Robin Wright, you may know her from Princess Bride, House of Cards, so many different things. She's she's wonderful. They at times love each other and hate each other. You can see the movie De Lovely with John Travolta and they too for a depiction of this. And <laughs> apparently, what are they talking? <laughs> have you seen that movie? No. Keep going. <laughs> they were photographed together at LAX. Like no, just the two of them. It kind of reminded me of It's Complicated, where like, you're like, what's going on here? This is so exciting. Are they back together? Probably not. They both are recently divorced. You know, I can't say if this is healthy or not, but just as a, as a fan, <laughs> I was so excited that these two were were hanging out and perhaps more. I don't know. They just can't quit each other. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't say if this is healthy or not. I mean, but when as a you- fan... When you backslide that much, it's alarming. But hey, I love it. I wish everyone the best. And please keep on hanging out, Sean Penn and Robin Wright Penn. I don't have anything to add to this. I I hope it's healthy. I hope everyone's healthy. And that was... This honestly... This reminded me that we need to plan a special event jam session for uh, Ellen Pompeo's last Grey's episode, which I saw was announced. Yes, it's the next episode of Grey. It's coming in February. Okay. Yeah. Are you emotionally ready? How are you doing? No. Well, I just don't even know what they could do. Like, I'm not emotionally ready. I really, really, I know it's not going to happen, but like the best thing in the world would be Sandra Oh to come back for an episode. Mm -hmm. That would be amazing. But it just, she will never do it. They hate each other. The other thing I thought you were going to say that we needed to plan a special episode for... (laughs) January 27th, Shotgun Wedding Shotgun is coming wedding. to Prime. Oh, yeah. yeah, we do. 
We do. I'm so excited. I've been waiting. We've been waiting like literally three years since Army Hammer got fired from this film at the beginning of COVID. So I'm really excited. I've never been excited for anything having to do with Josh Duhamel before. So this is absolutely huge. I can't wait. Okay. All right. Last topic of the day. We both recently read the extremely popular novel Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. I posted about it on my Instagram yesterday because I felt that the book unfairly characterized Park Slope, the neighborhood in which I reside as hipster and also likened it to Silver Lake where I previously lived and Portland where I've never been. So I felt personally attacked and I needed to bring it to Instagram because I was alone on the subway and I got a lot of feedback. It's a very popular book. So I figured, hey, we should talk about it because we both recently read it. I didn't know anything about this book before I read it. Did you know it had to do with video games? I did because a mutual friend of ours loved it and recommended it to me with the explanation that it really spoke to the, quote, gamer in her, which was not something I knew about her and that really tickled me. So you know what's I read funny? It. Go ahead. I would, never, I would never recommend this book to you. I would never be like, Amanda should read this. Um, you, another friend, my friend Neil, who listens to the podcast and who recommended Love Marriage and a couple other books also recommended it to me. So I had like several people be like, "I this was a great read. But what is it? A great read that Amanda would like? Is that what they were thinking? Well, Julia, that's why you're one of my closest friends. (laughs) Because you know. And my husband actually read it before me. And he read the whole thing, but gave me like a slightly more tempered, I'm reading this and I guess you'll read it because we like bought it, you know, for the house. But but it's very popular. It's like one of the most popular books of 2022. Yeah, which is why I wanted to read it. Yeah, and it's, you said this, it is undeniably a successful novel and I found it occasionally like overwhelmingly humane and like beautiful. I also had some real problems with it, but it's just interesting. Like this book has really, really galvanized people in a in a way that I, I think like the last book that I remember to do this was Conversations with Friends, which is like quite different. Yeah. But it's just like this like, it brings together so many different genres and like a lot of really great books that get a lot of attention. It is kind of a genre fiction novel, but it's literary fiction too. Like in the way that like Michael Chabon writes literary genre fiction. Sort of. Yes. Sort of. Yes. yes. Sort it, is, of. it is aspiring to be in that genre. And I, I mean, I think it's successful. It, it has one of those things you read the first page and this is like a writer with like a deep command of the world that she is building and who and who these people are. I think some of the style choices and specifically, and so interesting that you brought up Conversations with Friends, which I think was a hit with, I mean, it was a hit, a phenomenon for sure. But I know a lot of people our age and of our generation, like millennial, read it. And then it did seem that it spoke to the generation slightly younger than us as well. Mm -hmm. And this, to me, this book, even though I, I'm honestly, I think Gabrielle Zevin is probably our age. She's a little bit older. A little bit older, but it spoke to me. It had to me vibes of really hard millennial or even slightly younger in terms of the way that it handled like its themes, but also its self-awareness. There was yeah. something really like spoken about everything that's going on in this book. It names the thing over and over and over again. and. In some ways, like, it has to do that because that's the only way, I guess, that you're going to get the parallels between the worlds that it's creating within the book. And we should say this is a novel about some about video game creators. And so it's it's naming things and, and articulating feelings and through art is, like, what the book is about in a lot of ways. And so it has yeah. to do it. But it is also... It puts its finger right on the exact thing that it needs to say, like very literally in a way that I associate with like more social media influenced forms of culture that I don't always need. And that was ultimately the thing that really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Even though I think that it's like it's an undeniable achievement. Like this is like a a, this is a cap. This is a novel, you know? Yeah. I thought that the way that it challenges the idea of of like what is world building in culture, I thought was like very necessary. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I I always like Kate for Shonda Rhimes as a world builder, which she is. And one of the characters 
but to your point, one of the characters like really literalizes that by worrying about credit and they've like very much talk about like different worlds because that's part of video games, like the way like levels are or whatever. So it it does like, it is very literal at times, but I think that some of the like insights about like friendship was so specific. It was really sweet. I, I will say I read this book in a very condensed window. And so it's like, while I was reading it, I was like, oh, I, should, I should like really like, underline this. But now that I've moved on, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Next on to, on to the next. But I just think it's interesting, like what a absolute force this book is. Like it is so popular and people really love it. Like I think it, it also speaks to like loneliness and this is totally unrelated except for the idea of loneliness, but the Whitney in New York has an Edward, Ho- Edward Hopper show right now, Edward Hopper's New York. And it is so crowded. Like everyone I know who has gone has been like, wow, it was really crowded. And it's a, it's a good show. But I think of Edward Hopper as like a painter of loneliness. Like he captures people mm-hmm. looking solemn and isolated. And I think there's something about like accessible art and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, in a very positive way that is able, that can tap into that, that becomes really universally beloved because I think that's like such a common condition, particularly in the COVID era. And I was thinking a lot about that. One thing about this book that I, I found really instructive, even though I don't identify with it, and in fact, it was possibly one of the ways in which the power of like this book, like, was sort of limited for me was this like deep belief in 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 video games as a form of empathy which like animates these two creators and and animates the characters and what they're trying to do i mean their shared work in these worlds that they're building is like what builds their friendship and is how they discover their friendship and how like the, it plays out in different ways and i Video games don't resonate for me in that way. I don't play video games. I've always sort of had like a, a, my brain just doesn't work that way, whether it's because I wasn't exposed to them as a kid. And so I just, I don't, it's it's not an Much art like that resonates. Much like TikTok, too noisy. Yeah, it's not an art form that resonates with me, but I do think it resonates with a lot of people and I do think it serves that role. And so I do wonder whether some of the popularity is because it's examining art and relationships and world building just from a different perspective than certainly the way that my brain works and then the way that literary fiction often, often works. And so people who like people who don't often respond to these types of novels were really exhilarated by it. I think that's part of it. I do also think for, I I haven't given like a full throated endorsement of this book. I know, but like it is like a engrossing story and it just, it has that quality of you can, you have your idea of what the characters look like. You have your idea of what their apartment looks like. You want to know what happens. You, you know, it, like it is, it is a page turner. It's just a very successful book. So that's probably the other reason that it works. I also just want to say, if you liked uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, I think you'll like the voice of this book. My biggest problem with it was I found the narrator both too literal and also inconsistent and the sort of jumping yeah. around between perspective is not really a type of narrator that I enjoy that much because I it doesn't, like the logic of it trips me up and I'm always mm-hmm. thinking about like, well, what are we supposed to know? What do the other characters know? Like things like that. So like, that was my big problem with it, but it's a really, really engulfing, enjoyable yeah. read. So I'd like a redo on the ending personally, but not what happens, but how it is conveyed. Mm-hmm. That was like, that was a real tough part for me. I was like, seriously? An airport goodbye is not what I was looking for in this book. And that's not really a spoiler. Yeah. But also the the dime store therapy that comes before it. I was like, okay, all right. I get it. (laughs) We can do better than this. And frankly, this book and this level of writing deserves better than this is what I have to say. So let's just do it over again. That's my book. Well, Gabrielle Zevin is adapting it. I bet she is. The screen. Yeah, it's I'm gonna sure. be Paramount. So although it's gonna be a movie, not a TV show, which doesn't seem like enough time. I if it, I if it's think an appropriately length because movie. I don't wanna actually have to play the video game, you know? I mean, I guess that would be an interesting way of telling all of it to which, like lean into the video game aspects of it. Maybe it should be a video game. Maybe that's how they should adapt it. They definitely should. I was actually wondering, yeah. like, does she have all these game ideas that she's going to get to make now? We'll find out. I mean, and that stuff's amazing. So it's yeah. a, I recommend this book. It's very creative. All right, everybody. I think we've we've all 
enjoyed this post spare podcast, at least the back half of it. Thank you to our producer, Jade, for laughing at our jokes and bearing with mm-hmm. us and for producing this episode. We will be back next week on Monday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.